Hello, and welcome to another installment of Find Your Joy here on the FW Presents Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Now, for this episode, folks, I am one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me is Rob Kelly, who is boldly going. Going where? That's anybody's guess. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing all right. Uh, it is very bold of us to completely take over uh, the subject uh, from another one of our <laughs> one of another one of our shows on the network. Well, Siskoid has done episodes on Justice League International, you know, and he's he's touched on uh, other other topics that weren't necessarily his, you know, in his Invasion series and all that. And Chris has done Star Trek stuff too, so um, I think Star Trek belongs to everyone. Well, we we did ask him if we could make this an episode of uh, "Give Me Those Star Trek," and he said no in three different languages. So uh, that's why it's a uh, an FW present. He uh, he unfriended me, so that was weird. But um, <laughs> yeah, and, and part of the reality you got to face here, folks, is yes, Siskoid is sort of our Star Trek guru on the network. But his show is such a window, like into his weird perspective of Star Trek and the world. And we're just a couple of dorks that want to review some comics, so we're coming at it from a completely different angle. So anyway. Yes, right, and and Siskoid hasn't hasn't uh, lost his complete uh, taste for Star Trek the way Ryan has for Star Wars, which is why Ryan lets us do give me those Star Wars episodes. <laughs> we just hijack it and take over whenever we want. So yeah. So there's another reason that Star Trek's sort of on the brain right now, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, um, over on CBS All Access, we've got Picard running. In fact, I literally just finished watching the fourth episode. Couple minutes ago, before we were sitting here to record, and it is very exciting. No spoilers. I'm not going to say any spoilers. It's very exciting to see Jean-Luc Picard back on television. Uh, I mean, I think that um, That, that's a spoiler, technically. By the way, okay, yeah, all right, Uh, yeah. What a shock that he's in the (laughs) show. Um, But I mean, no, I mean, I thought that Star Trek Nemesis was just a disastrous movie, and for for many years, I was very, very bitter. Even though the original crew is my crew more than the Next Gen crew, I love Next Gen. I've seen every episode. I love the movies except for Nemesis, and I was really bothered that that was how these great characters went out was on this crap movie. So uh, it's great to have you know Patrick Stewart get another go round at, at this great character. So it's it's very exciting. I've been watching it week to week, like uh, the way you used to watch television. I I haven't watched any of it yet myself. What I'm waiting for is in March, my family's going on various trips, and I'll have the house to myself. So I am getting CBS All Access for one month, and I'm binging that crap out of Discovery and Picard. So that's my plan. And, you know, for me, I I didn't mind Nemesis as much as as you did. I I hated the one – was it the one before that that was so terrible? Insurrection. Oh, I hated that one. Anyway, uh, when, when Riker grabs the joystick to fly the ship. Anyway, uh, <laughs> look, it's, an, it's a Nintendo 64 on the on board. Anyway, I for me, my sadness was when the Star Trek reboot happened. I felt like, okay, well, you know, we've got this new Kelvin universe. I thought we were never going to see the quote-unquote prime universe again. I thought, you know, and then we got Discovery. But then I thought, well, we'll certainly never see the next generation universe again. Well, it's, it's very exciting to is out there. Uh, it's been killing me not to watch it, but I just it's uh, I got I got too much on my plate at this moment, and the perfect opportunity is coming, so I, I can't wait. Yeah, I won't say any anything more about it other than that I have been watching it, and it said I love seeing Jean Luc Picard. It's awesome. Yay! 
Yay! So, well, before we get into all the Star Trek chocolatey goodness, which we are about to do, uh, we should take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of FW Presents is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, Rob, this episode is all about finding your joy. What joy have you brought us today? I have Star Trek, uh, the newspaper comics, volume one, mm-hmm. uh, which reprints the Star Trek newspaper strip, which I never read. That never ran in any papers uh, in this area. Uh, so this collects the continuity from December 2nd, 1979 through October 25th, 1981 by Thomas Warkington, Charmaine Devono, and Ron Harris. It is 284 pages. Normal price is $49.99. In stock trades price is $34.99. That is 30% off. And of course, as I said, it, it's IDW really does these uh, newspaper reprints right. And so I would love to read these sometime just to see what these adventures are because I've never read even – other than seeing like a Google image, I've never read these at all. This is just – this. even though I lived in Philadelphia, which is, had a lot of newspapers, it, ne- it never ran. So uh, this is a whole part of like classic Trek that I'm completely ignorant of. It's super fun. Uh, I, I also did not get a chance to read any of it growing up. The Star Wars strip was not in my area. Neither was the Star Trek strip. Neither was the Spider-Man strip. None of them. Um, we had Spider-Man. That one we did have. We, we did have Spider-Man. We didn't even get Calvin and Hobbes until like, years after it was already in, uh, out there. Anyway, uh, but I did pick up this trade paperback or this hardcover, at least the one I have, a couple years ago. And uh, it's – at least I think it was a couple years ago. Either way, it's super fun. It's fun, fun stories. So I highly recommend it. And it's, you know, it's classic Trek in comic book form. You know, you can't go yeah, wrong. Yeah. So I brought Star Trek Archives Volume 6 Best of Alternate Universes trade paperback. And thank goodness this is still in print, folks. This collects from – even though this is collected by IDW because that's who's got the license now. This collects originally the DC issues, the eight issues, uh, what's known as the Mirror Universe Saga. We'll talk a little more about it later. But it has to do with Kirk and Spock and the crew of the Enterprise battling their counterparts from the Mirror Universe. And it is – Possibly some of the best Star Trek comics I've ever read. Uh, written by Mike W. Barr, art by Tom Sutton and Ricardo v- v- Villagran. Uh, cover arts by Ricardo Villagran. Page counts 196, full color, normally $24.99. It's 50% off right now, so you can get it for $12.49. And fees are damn good. In fact, our, our mutual friend Mike Har- Harlow, I think it was him, just recently online said that he thought it was uh, some of Mike W. Barr's best writing ever. So, hmm, okay. Yeah, it's good stuff. I love the heck out of it. So, for these and all your trade paperback needs, folks, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part by your Patreon support. You know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of hosting online services, and these dilithium crystals aren't cheap, folks. So, for the past three years, we hosts have been absorbing those costs, but they've grown considerably uh, and recently, and so we've launched a Patreon to help out. So, if you're enjoying this show and other shows of its kind, the best way to support us is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And please consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And at certain sponsorship tiers, you'll get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water shows. Our, uh, for example, our thanks go out to David Gutierrez and Gord Tolton. So again, just visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So, Rob, this is a Find Your Joy episode. So tell me, why or how does Star Trek bring you joy? Well, I mean, I've talked about it on Siskoid's uh, show, which again, we're not allowed to be on, uh, where I, I talked about... <laughs> 
uh, I watched Trek in not its original broadcast form, but I watched it in the original syndication run in the 70s. It was a show that I watched with my dad. Uh, my dad enjoyed Star Trek. My mom, I've, again, I've said, has no tolerance for anything in science fiction. She's right. like, oh, that's just ridiculous. That, does, <laughs> that, that makes no sense. But my dad and I would watch it on Saturday nights together, and I gobbled up every episode of the show. I loved it. I loved the cartoon. Mm. Uh, I loved the Mego toys. In fact, my Mego Gorn doll is hanging off my computer as I sit here and and, uh, <laughs> uh, and record this. So uh, Star Trek was, and I had the uh, I had the little figurines for the the movie, the the motion picture, nineteen sixty nine. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the, there's a, there's a picture of me in the family photo of me unwrapping the Enterprise uh, bridge playset uh, from Mego in like nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have, I've always loved Star Trek. I love the movies. As much as I love the original TV show, it's the movies that are my favorite iteration. I think Star Trek's two, three, and four as a trilogy are some of the finest movies put put on film, the science fiction. And Star Trek Four in particular is one of my favorite movies, period. Not just favorite sci fi or favorite Star Trek. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And so Star Trek has always given me joy and, you know, I haven't kept up with it in some places here and there. I've, like I mentioned, I've seen every episode of Next Gen. Uh, each show after that has been kind of, to me, diminishing returns. But, uh, but I, when they rebooted it, I was on board for that. So it's like anytime there's going to be some fresh take on Star Trek, I'm going to give it a shot because it just – I like its uh, positive viewpoint, you know, that, that, that we'll get better. You know, as the world goes on, right. like it's not it's not all just post-apocalypse, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, although that is in Star Trek as well. Uh, but I mean, I like that whole notion. And so, yeah, it's always been something I enjoyed. And it's kind of amazing that we're going to be talking about these comics because this is, again, another blind spot. Um, we'll talk about when we get to it. But like I never read any of these comics and I have no idea why. We've got some similarities going on here, buddy. So for me, Star Trek does bring me a tremendous amount of joy, even to this day. I mean, I just finished a Star Trek book last week, uh, novel, and, and and I don't really have a lot to say that's deep or insightful because I'm just not that smart of a guy. So that's again, that's why we don't get I don't get invited on Cisco's show very often. I was on there one time and never after that. But um, now I've gone over some of my history. Either I can't remember whether it was Cisco's show or Chris's show. So I'll just real encapsulate it real quickly. I was introduced to Star Trek when I was about seven years old by my dad. Uh, he Manage television stations, and one of the things he got to choose, you know, have a hand in, was choosing what shows to syndicate. And he sure as hell was going to have Star Trek on his channel. And so he, uh, I was in the family room one day, and now my father doesn't speak like this except in my stories, but in, he, I remember him going, Boy, sit down, watch this, it's important. <laughs> Again, my father doesn't sound like that. Anyway, he sounds like he sounds like McCoy in the opening in the first episode of Star Trek: Next Generation. Is what you saying? You don't got points in your ears, boy. Um, but anyway, so it was the Gorn episode. It was Arena, and I was hooked. And now I didn't see all of TOS. I, I, in fact, to this day, I still haven't seen all of TOS. But what? For, I know, isn't that crazy? But for me, my passion comes, as you said, from the movies. Man, I love. The movies. Oh my gosh, that's that's my happy place. When I'm sick, when I'm home in bed and I can't get up, I watch Star Trek Four. You said it's one of your favorite movies of all time. Me too. As far as I'm concerned, it is my favorite feel-good movie of all time. And uh, when the wife goes out of town, I have Star Trek marathons, as I mentioned. Whenever there's a new Star Trek movie in the theater, actually my brother, my father and I, we all live in different cities in different parts of the country, but we all fly to one central location to watch the movies together. So that's that we're nice. there, you know, opening weekend and watch it as a family. So. 
Beyond the movies, probably SDNG is probably my my next favorite. I mean, I watched every single episode three times a week. I would tape it. I would I'd watch it as it aired. I would watch it on tape with my brother, and I watch it on tape with my friend Bob. So I, I knew these things in and out. Uh, you know, I loved it, and I stayed deeply passionate for probably about twenty years. It was probably, as you said, diminishing returns. It was probably somewhere around I don't know half of Voyager where I kind of started fading out a bit, but. Um, so for me, again, the movie era is really where it's at. I, I, I love the Enterprise for the movie era. I think it's the most gorgeous-looking version of the ship from anyone, even, even more than the reboot version. I think the that you know, or the A, whatever version you want to call it. the one for the movies is just gorgeous. And uh, I, I think maybe part of it is uh, the movie era. The Kirk having a midlife crisis just appeals to me. It always has. I mean, I guess probably even more so now because I'm middle-aged. <laughs> but um, and then for where I find my happy place nowadays is I, it's not watching much of it because the movies I know backwards and forwards. So I don't watch them that often, but I read the books. I've read somewhere between somewhere between 50 to 75 of the original novels, and I just love them. The expanded universe novels just bring me so much joy, and usually I split my time between reading a Kirk novel. Uh, I just finished Best Destiny by Diane Carey. It's actually my second time reading it, or I read a lot of Peter David New Frontier novels, but that is, that's where I find my joy nowadays, and just like you, this is the first time I've read these Star Trek comics. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention as you were going through the list that I remembered was back when I like in the the nineties when I worked at a uh, graphic design studio it was it was placed inside of uh, this guy's our boss's house oh my gosh uh, and yeah I mean because like, he you know he was self employed but he had two employees me and my pal Dan Eaker who I went to art school with he's one of my closest friends and um, we sat there together and, and so yeah so we worked in in my boss's house and it was me and Dan and he worked on a lower level and Dan and I worked in a separate room uh, up a short flight of stairs and he used to have uh, he would put on the stereo and put things on all day for eight hours, different CDs or whatever. And we went on this run of Star Trek audiobooks. Oh, wow. And, 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 but I mean, the nonfiction ones. So we listened to, like, all in the space of like two weeks, we listened to Star Trek Memories by William Shatner, and then Movie Memories by Shatner, and then I Am Spock, and then even the Sulu one. Oh, wow. And we, we just had a blast just doing Sulu and Bidou, oh, you know, that whole thing. And so, that was one of my my warmest memories of Star Trek is just sitting there listening to these audiobooks about the making of it and stuff, uh, sitting up in in that room. So that was that's another great memory I have of, of Star Trek. But uh, regarding the comics, of course, Star Trek has pretty much always been in print by some licensor or another. It started with Gold Key. Uh, the Star Trek series ran for twelve years, thirteen years, sixty seven to seventy nine, which is extraordinary. That's a very long run. Uh, and they're extraordinarily bad, from what I understand as well. <laughs> okay, I have, I have, I think I've only read a few of them, and they're they're pretty pretty dull from what I remember. Uh, Cisco did cover them on his yeah. show, and then there was the Marvel series, which ran very briefly from eighty to eighty one. Although it does feature an issue written by Alan Brenner, that's right. So that's right. it's always worth always worth noting there. I, I, uh, ha- I had some of those Marvel ones. Uh, in fact, when I was with, when I was Clint, with Clinton Robinson in. Uh, Oklahoma recently, we were in a shop and they, someone uncovered a treasure trove of speculator books or something. I don't know. This guy had like a hundred copies of Star Trek number one on his shelf, the Marvel one from 30 years ago or 40 years ago. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, really? Are these originals or reprints? He's like, nope, those are real. Somebody bought a bunch and we bought them from them. And I'm like, oh my God. So I think I bought one, two, and three just, just off the shelf for a quarter. So it was pretty funny. But I had them growing up. I had a couple of them. And I, the only thing I remember was in the back of one of the issues I had, they had like um, 
back matter pages showing you all the different uniforms, the pajama uniforms from a motion picture, and what all the, like the braids meant for like commander and lieutenant commander. I thought that stuff was so freaking cool. I, <laughs> I mean, I would draw pictures of the uniforms to, to make sure I got the rank right. Oh goodness gracious. Well, from there, DC picks up the license, right? And they, they've done a couple different eras of, D, uh, of Star Trek comics, but the first one is what we're going to focus on, and it was sandwiched between Star Trek II and Star Trek III. And it's a little bit awkward timing, actually, if you think about it. So to, to do a series between Star Trek II and III, in reality, with those movies now, from hindsight, we can go, there's like, what, an hour in between those movies, right? For- it's it's, it's imp- it, it, Going back and, and looking at this, you are like, boy, Mike W. Barr, man, talk about a narrow lane he had to operate. I mean, he must have been, he must have looked, he must have felt like uh, Scotty in a Jeffrey's tube of just not being able to do much of anything. Uh, considering how how brief the window is between these movies, right? And, and you know, at least with Star Wars movies, with the comics guys had like you know, the, between the first two movies, there's like a couple years, and then between the second two movies, there's like you know, three months at least or whatever. So they had a little bit, but yeah, he's got nothing. But he made it work. So uh, so here's the timing phrase. So Star Trek Two comes out right, uh, July fourth, nineteen. I'm sorry, June fourth, nineteen eighty two. Star Trek number one from DC Comics is released November 10th, 1983. So a year and a few months later. So November 10th, 1983. Well, Star Trek three comes out just seven months later, July 1st, 1984. In fact, issue number seven was on the stands of this series when it comes out. So he's only got seven months to build a story, a trajectory in between these two movies, which, which again, is just crazy. And then what they did was uh, Star Trek issue number nine, which came out in September, so uh, a few months after the movie. That's where the comics sort of catch up to Star Trek three. And then he goes on for several years, and that <laughs> you know he's telling stories between Star Trek three and Star Trek four as well. And think about that: that the period between those two movies is even shorter. Because between two and three, at least they dropped off Carol Marcus, right? <laughs> between three and four, there's no time passes other than Spock gets up, maybe brushes his teeth, you know, at most. So anyway, um, so is, we again, this is Rob and I coming at these with complete hindsight, reading these for the first time. And I think it's, you know, fair for, at least on my part, to say, okay, it's the movie era Trek, my favorite. It's DC Comics in the 1980s. It's covers by George Perez in the 1980s. Dude, this is a formula for pure joy for me. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. I get the sense getting uh, George Perez to do your cover is, you know, they're like, we need to, like, goose these sales a little bit. Like, we really oh, want to. So yeah. Let's get, let's get our, our number one guy and have him do the covers. <laughs> it feels a little bit like a cheat, but you also understand it because it's like, hey, if you can get George Perez to do your cover, you're going to get him. Well, I mean, yeah, it, 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 having special cover artists isn't a new concept. They were clearly doing it back then, too. Right. So uh, just to give you some perspective, you know, we talked about the, the, the short windows between them. So as I mentioned, Star Trek one issues one through eight take place between Star Trek two and three. You have no Spock in any of these. He's dead. Savick is the science <laughs> officer on board the ship, uh, I guess technically based on um, Kirstie Alley, which is so weird to me because, like, I, I have a hard time seeing Kirstie Alley now as Savick and then thinking of her as, like, cool, awesome Vulcan you know, person, because I always go to the cheers you know, years. I can't help it. But anyway, so Sulu is actually first officer of the Enterprise. And like Kirk's son, David, actually shows up occasionally, stuff like that, which is pretty cool. The, the Mirror Universe saga takes uh, – once you get after Star Trek three, 
So then the Mirror Universe Saga takes place, which is eight issues and eight, and again, it's glorious. And then after that, they, they're, they're in between Star Trek 3 and 4, right? Like I said, it's like a 15-minute window. But issues 16 through 36, they get to do 20 issues wedged between 3 and 4. And where they end up doing is Kirk, because the Enterprise is blown up, right? Kirk gets command of the Excelsior. And and he's cruising around the, the you know for twenty issues in the Excelsior, and Spock's cruising around in his own science vessel, the USS Serac. So uh, again, awkward timing of the movies, but you know the, the writers made it work. They really did, because in each one, what they did was leading up to Star Trek Three, they started putting all the pieces back in place. Like in Star Trek Three, they're taking David to go hang out on the USS Grissom. You know, and as they get ready for Star Trek Four, they they put Spock back in the white outfit. They get the Klingon bird of prey back. They instead of just saying ah those issues didn't happen, they find ways to sort of sync it all up. They really work hard to make it work with continuity. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> e. Nelson Birdwell lives right. Well, let's get into this. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover for the first four issues because it for, forms one big story arc, and we're going to give a quick recap, talk about the issues. Um, and, you know, we didn't talk about this in advance. Do we want to do all the recaps and then talk about it, or go issue by issue? Let's do issue by issue. I feel like that's a it breaks it up a little. All right. So we start off with Star Trek number one. So exciting to say. Written by Mike W. Barr. Penciler is Tom Sutton. Inker is Ricardo Villagran. Letter is John Costanza. Colorist is Michelle Wolfman. Editor is Marv Wolfman. And the cover is by George Perez. And you've got a shot of the bridge crew uh, all in their you know post uh, uh, search. Uh, I'm sorry, post. Wrath of Khan outfits, and uh, you see them all on the bridge. You can't see the bridge itself. You can only see them and their seats. And behind them is this effect, this blue uh, uh, circular spiraling out sort of effect to, to imply warp speed flying at you. And you can see in the background, you see the saucer section of the uh, USS Enterprise. First star-spanning collector's issue. Uh, thoughts on the cover before we get into it? it it's good. I think, I think uh, their heads are a little big. Uh, far be it for me to question George Perez's anatomy, but the heads have always looked a little big to me on on this on this cover. And again, this is based on absolutely nothing other than I wonder if the likenesses weren't retouched a little, and then like maybe the heads got pasted back on bodies, and because they're all uniformly a little big, hmm. like you're just like proportion wise, they're just a little big. But uh, I mean, man, it's certainly a, a lot going on. Uh, well, it's Perez <laughs> I mean, in the eighties, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, good lord, you got the Starfield effect and the ship and the warp, and then you've got all these characters and whatever. So, good. And the likenesses are they're 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 close, but they're not uh, f- stiffer photographic. Like clearly, uh, they're meant to you know DeForest Kelly kind of looks like DeForest Kelly, but it's Perez's version of them, uh, which I kind of like. I don't like that he's not necessarily going for exactly look that. So yeah, it's a very handsome cover. And I like that the Star Trek logo is the same red as their red of their uniforms. Mm-hmm. I think that's a nice you know. Color, color connecting. It makes it pop. Yeah, I, I will yeah. say I think Sulu is dead on. I think that likeness is quite, a, quite, a, quite astonishing. Actually, uh, is how much. And now Savick is Savick is the one that looks the least like I think Kirstie Alley of the, of the actress. Mm. But they sort of, as this goes on throughout these issues, they develop their own look for Savick. It doesn't look like Robin Curtis uh, later on, and it doesn't look like Kirstie Alley here. They have their own version of Savick, and I think it looks great. I think it looks awesome. So I, I'm thrilled with this cover because I, I, anything from Paris in the 80s is just gold to me. I don't see what you're seeing as far as the heads being too big. But, I mean, I trust you. You're, you're the artist. I'm not. But uh, I, I do. And I like that they put Scotty in the white engineer outfit. Yeah, and his little – the thing that gets bloodied when his, right. uh, when his, when his nephew go boom. Oh, that's, that's from a deleted scene. It's not canon. Anyway. <laughs> Peter Preston, sir. All right. So here we go. The Wormhole Connection is the name of the issue. The story I can't hear, I hear Kermit sing that when I see the, the wormhole connection, the Klingons, the Horda, and me. <laughs> oh my god! How long 
long had you been waiting to do that? Oh, like a couple minutes. <laughs> so Horta, that was, I mean, that was really impressive. I, wow. Got to give me the right syllables. Number, right number of syllables. That was great. Okay. Uh, I can't follow that up, folks. All right. So the story <laughs> opens with a Klingon ambush led by Captain Koloff near the neutral zone. The attack destroys the Federation starship, the USS Gallant, including Captain Bearclaw and Science Officer Price. Then we catch, shut up. Then we catch up with Admiral Kirk, Admiral, Admiral. We catch up with Admiral Kirk, who convinces Starfleet to put him back aboard the Enterprise as her captain. Of course he does. And they're surrounded by his old crew, plus Lieutenant Savick as the new science officer and Sulu as the first officer. The Enterprise is off to investigate the destruction of the USS Galleon. Along the way, we meet new crew members, including Ensign William Bearclaw, who starts a fight with Ensign Nancy Bryce, both the children of the USS Galleon's officers. Later, another Klingon ambush, this time against the Enterprise, but Kirk outwits Koloth and heavily damages the Klingon attack force. Kirk gives Savick a hard time about her job performance, but Bones talks Kirk into giving her a break. Together, the crew discover the Klingon's ambush trick. The Klingons are using a wormhole pocket dimension to appear and disappear for quick strikes. Kirk and Ensign Bryce use the transporter to travel through the wormhole in spacesuits while Savick flies a shuttlecraft through the wormhole. Inside the wormhole pocket dimension, our heroes discover a heavily armored Klingon space station poised to strike against the Federation. Da-da-da-da! All right, buddy. What would you think of the first issue? I liked it. I, I said uh, earlier that I didn't get this comic as a kid. I just completely missed it. I mean, I knew it was out there. I have no idea why. I don't know why I didn't get this. Uh, because obviously, every, as everyone knows, I was flush with cash. So, right. I mean, I could have bought it. I don't know. I mean, I love Star Trek, so I have no idea why I did not get this. Maybe if I if I try and reach back to what 13-year-old me was thinking, other than, am I ever going to touch a girl? Is <laughs> is like maybe the artwork by by Sutton and Villagran just wasn't flashy enough for me, perhaps. Maybe I kind of looked at it and just went, eh, that looks a little on the dull side. But my tastes have changed. And so I, I read this first issue and I enjoyed it a lot. I think all the characters are pretty uh, on model in terms of their characterization. Uh, again, especially when you appreciate how little room Mike W. Barr must have had uh, to play in this in this field. I mean, and I understand why he introduces the new characters like Bryce and 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 uh, Ensign Cruller, and and so I get that. Um, but uh, it's it, I really enjoy it. To me, it feels like Star Trek. Yes, it, it, that's the I, and as everyone knows, and and we've covered this on other episodes like i love star wars that was always my main fandom and i love the star wars comic i never missed an issue of that marvel series but i will say there are some issues of the marvel series that don't feel like star wars at all but this really feels like star trek you to me it's like this could have been an episode of the tv show uh, with a obviously much enlarged budget uh, and but but I I thoroughly enjoyed. It. I liked the characterizations. I thought there's some funny stuff. I love Kirk inspecting the troops. Like I think that's a, like he's kind of a little like you can sort of hear Shatner. Oh yeah, uh, in these lines, you know, you know, I I see. Well, I may not who start know who started it, but I know what. <laughs> we don't know what happened to the Gallon. It's our job to find it. You know, that's my terrible Shatner. It, but yes, I mean, it it's, <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. But it, I know I thoroughly enjoyed this first issue. I, I thought it was an absolute hoot. Now you talk about the voices. There's a great Kirk gives a, a, a inspirational speech to the crew, talking about like you know I'm talking to the new cadets here, not the not the old hands. And it starts off really inspirational, but by the end of it, 
Like, I don't know whether Mark W. Barr just ran out of steam, but Kirk just kind of ends his speech with, like, don't let me down. I mean, it just, it, like, <laughs> totally lands with a dead, like, a lead balloon. It's like, oh, what, what happened there? So, wow, okay. Um, now, there is a, there is something that is perfect, which is where, it's page 17, where Kirk and Bones are arguing about Savick. Kirk is, like, pissed off at her. He's like, she's not doing her job. And Bones is like, give her a damn chance. And the script is perfect. I mean, I read this. I can literally hear the actors' voices. Say every yeah. single line on page 17. It is absolutely perfect. I thought that was exceptional. Now, I don't know. I read one of the letters pages later where somebody said that they were reusing lines from the movies and TV shows. So maybe maybe that's part of the reason I hear this. Maybe Barr was pulling from previous discussions. I don't know. But this just hmm. this page resonated to me more real than just, wow, wow, that was totally dead on. Uh, you laughed when I mentioned uh, Ensign Bearclaw earlier. Um, I, I do like that they've introduced this Bearclaw character with Bryce. Like these, like, stop it! These lower deck people, because you know, think about it, this is a comic book. It's going to be an ongoing series. They've got to have subplots, right? They've yeah. got to have ongoing characters. And you know, just like any problem, just like the Justice League comic, you can't kill Superman. Well, right. You could kill Bearclaw if you need to. Right. You got to have characters you can mess with. Exactly. And Bearclaw, at least to here, I, I don't know what happens to him later on. I mean, I'm only on issue like. 20 or so in my in my read through but bear claw at this point he's he's kind of the flash thompson of the group you know he's part of the team but he's a jerk you know he's he's not he's not a bad guy but he is an antagonist so i like having that character on the ship i think that's good and then what else um the wormhole so okay so the wormhole idea they keep saying wormhole but it's like a pocket dimension instead so that took me a while because you know and now in my hindsight i'm pu- i'm putting this against you know deep space 9 or something like that and so it's uh, you got to readjust your thoughts I, I got a couple comments on the art um, the first page i don't know if you if you noticed that's a house ad that they ran for this series they yes ran, they ran it in a dc sampler yeah that's right they ran that as an ad which is kind of cool i love on page 5 uh, and you should flip to this here with me. Uh, when when the Enterprise goes to warp, that's and, a great effect. Well, it, doesn't it remind you of the the motion picture poster too, with the vertical yes, colors? Yeah, we're right, right, with the rainbow color. Yeah, yep. it does. That's a really sharp effect by Villagran and Sutton. He does such a good job with this ship too. I mean, I told you earlier that my favorite version of the ship is this one, and he does a stunning rendition of it. He does a really good job. In one of the later issues, he writes in a letter column. Uh, Sutton says that. Because uh, I guess somebody accused him of tracing or something like that. Either way, he says, no, he, someone built him a model. I guess probably one of those, like, Ertl model kits or something. And he uses it and just moves it where he wants it to and draws from it, which is really astonishing. That, I mean, drawing from a 3D thing is hard enough as it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, it does such a beautiful job. I love it. It had to be a real pain to draw all these architectural ships so so often. He probably was like, please get us back inside so I can draw people again. <laughs> Now I'm going to ask you a question, and boy, I'm going to be really embarrassed if I'm if I'm wrong here. Um, the ensigns, the ensigns' uniforms all have like a V-neck. It, did okay. he, did they make this up? Did the did they make up these uniforms, or were these in the movies too? What the V-neck? The the ensign uniforms don't have like the the reach. You know, like Kirk has the reach around thing that he unbu- unbuttons and gets the blood on. Yeah, the little the right the right. The, yeah, the the panel that kind of very Captain yeah. Marvel thing. But the, the ensigns don't. The ensigns just have a pullover, which is V-neck, yeah. and then it's got like the same sort of uh, you know mock turtleneck thing though. Yeah, I don't. We didn't see that many ensigns in Star Trek Two, so I don't. Th- yeah, I think that might have been a, a that might have been an original to the comic. And I think that's good. I mean, he took some creative license. I thought that was a good idea. So, and if I had any criticism of this, it would be that once in a while, and, and it's not necessarily an issue one. It's just in throughout my entire reread or, or first read. But anyway, there are occasional times where the panel layout and the word balloon design and layout make it a little confusing. 
as to like you read something and then you read the next word balloon. And you're like, oh, that, I should have read that word balloon. Yeah, I've ran into that a couple times. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really my only criticism. Now, here's something else that I didn't even think about. So the Klingons in this, right? They look like Klingons, right? Right. Well, the only time we have ever seen Klingons like this is in the beginning of Star Trek One. That's right. Right, right, right. So they have taken – they've extrapolated what we saw in Star Trek One and applied it here. And the head riches are a little different. You can tell because the head riches are a little specific to Star Trek motion picture rather than like Star Trek Three, where they get a little more bumpy and, and turtle shelly. But um, – and, and, and even Koloff. I mean they retroactively changed the way Koloff looks So from the old TV series. So I thought that was uh, pretty clever the way they did that. Yeah. I mean why, again, it's uh, – that's the – Part of the appeal is that you've got a larger budget to play with, so why not? Yeah, I just I'm just sort of interested in that uh, sort of concept in that they did stuff here that people would then do years later with a you know again mm-hmm. Klingons mm-hmm. changing existing Klingons stuff like. That. So all right, well let's uh, let's move on to issue two. It's all from the same creative team. Uh, the title of the story is "The Only Good Klingon." It features another George Perez cover. This is a very very dramatic. Something we very rarely got to see in Star Trek except maybe like the Tholian web, which is somebody in the crew actually outside mm-hmm. in space in the little spaceship. Uh, it's got this – it's got some great kind of Perez slash Kirby crackle uh, going on in the background with the magenta sky – magenta space. And it says, trapped aboard a Klingon warship, Kirk fights for his life. So it's uh, – I, I like the – there's, there's not a whole lot going on because you don't really see – who Kirk is sort of squaring off against. I mean, you see the ships, but you don't see Klingons. But still, I think it's a it's a really pretty compelling image. Yeah, it's the the body in the foreground looks great because it's a different kind of color. It's the red, and it's sort of the spacesuits we saw in either you know Star Trek motion picture when when Spock went on his little walkabout in, right. in V'ger, or maybe when uh, they're wearing it on uh, the when Chekhov's wearing his on the on the planet in the beginning of Star Trek Two. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and so the, the the dramatic pose where he's like holding on for dear life, it looks pretty cool. But yeah, you, you really can't get a sense of what's happening with the ships other no. than there's like, look, it's tech, you know. But yeah, the um, the magenta background really sets it off nicely. It looks really yeah. good. Yeah, it is sharp. So like I said it's the only good Klingon, and it is Kirk wonders how the Organians could have allowed the Klingons to blindly defy the Organian peace treaty with this hidden space station. Meanwhile, Sulu receives mission data from Savik aboard Galileo 3 inside wormhole space. Savik deliberately leaves her communications unscrambled to divert the Klingon forces from finding Kirk and Bryce. Captain Koloff and his crew return to the station, and Koloff's helmsman, Konam, fears that his captain knows of his aiding the Enterprise. Savik's shuttlecraft is detected, and Koloff orders it captured. Kirk and Bryce infiltrate the station as three Klingon security shuttles depart to intercept Savik. As soon as they enter the station, Klingon forces surround them. Kirk and Bryce manage to fight them off despite Bryce's hesitation in firing her phaser. Bryce feels insecure about her hesitation, but Kirk mentions his experience at Tycho 4 and promises to tell her about it later. The Klingons continue their pursuit of Savik's shuttlecraft but aren't fooled when she activates the shuttle's cloaking device. Kirk and Bryce encounter Kanam, or Konam, excuse me, who explains uh, that he has always been re- repulsed by his people's killing and destruction and that he can't allow the wanton slaughter that is sure to follow. Bryce and Konam plant an explosive charge on the wormhole stabilizer but cannot beam home due to the Klingons jamming transporter frequencies. Kirk tells Savick to storm the tra- station transporter room where she transports the team back to the ship along with an injured Konam. 
Kirk returns to the bridge just as the Klingons find the explosive charge. Once the wormhole stabilizer is destroyed, the Klingon space station returns to normal space. Kirk demands the Klingons surrender, but Koloff elects to destroy the station instead. Uhura reports that the Enterprise is receiving a very strong signal, which is from Emperor Kallus IV declaring war on the Federation due to the acts of Captain Kirk. And what did you just call that Emperor? Hmm? What did you just call that Emperor? Kallus? Kallus? Isn't that how you say Turn it? Turn in your geek card. That is Kalos. Oh, Kallus. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Well, they did like a billion episodes about Kalos. He's like, oh, Mister, I haven't seen all the original episodes of the series. Well, no, Next Gen even did a big thing about Kalos. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, so um, <laughs> great issue, I thought. So Kirk straight up killing Klingons and like yeah. encouraging people to straight up kill Klingons. I, <laughs> he, I know, he often talks about like you know. Um, you know, the enemy, like in, in some of the – because I watched some T- – by the way, I, I'll tell you a little bit later. I watched some TOS episodes in preparation for this recording. Anyway, uh, Kirk talks about the enemy quite a bit with, with Klingons, but has he always been so killy? <laughs> I'm asking. Well, I, uh, well, yeah. I mean, come on. He kills people left and right on the show. Okay. All right. I mean, you know, he blows up Khan and all of his followers. I mean – yeah, he's 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 a he's a naval commander. Of course, he has to be pretty comfortable killing his foes. I will say he blows up the well. This isn't happening, but he blows up the entire Enterprise with all the Klingons on it. That's I true. Mean, he's okay. he's got to be that way. All right, just seemed a little bloodthirsty to me, but all right, because I mean, he could have been stunning them instead. But anyway, um, have time for that. So the cloaking device on the shuttlecraft. Wow, that's cool. Um, I guess they decided that because there was the episode of, uh, you know, the TOS where they stole the, the, the cloaking device, I guess Mike W. Barr just sort of extrapolated that, well, I'm sure the Federation has cloaking technology by now, right? Because that's certainly not something ever seen again. It's not something, you know, <laughs> he, he makes it sound like it's standard issue. I thought it was interesting. So, uh, Conom. So that's the that's how I don't know how to say it, but that's the Klingon. It sounds so like horrible when he first introduces himself. And he's like, something is wrong with me, you know. Killing and destruction revulses me. I mean, just like <laughs> what this guy's really got some self image problems. I feel so bad. <laughs> he's a sensitive Klingon. I tell you, yeah. Now in this issue, Savic is a complete badass, and I have a real again. This is all on me because of Kirstie Alley. I have a real hard time correlating Kirstie Alley. Savic with this badass Savic. I just can't do it. So in my head, I've made up a new Savic who's the comic book Savic, and she's freaking cool. So I'm I'm going with that because I can't I can't. Can you correlate the two? Yeah, actually I can. I mean the 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 the, the Savic that we see in Star Trek Two is obviously a babe in the woods, but after experiencing what she experiences, I could see that she gets a little tougher and maybe morphs a little bit into the Robin Curtis. Savick, who I actually really like. I think she gets a bad rap, the Robin Curtis version of, of Savick. So, yeah, I mean, I, part, well, I mean, and part of it is Mike Bard, you know, needed us, needed a Vulcan character. And, and this issue was very action heavy. Mm-hmm. And so, like you're talking about, he probably can't get away with using Sulu to do some of the stuff, but he can use this newer character that hasn't been as established. So, yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't really dawn on me that she sort of is acting a little different because we haven't really seen her that much at this point. But yeah, she really, She's pretty hot and heavy with the action. Yeah, this one. she's cool. I, I really like this character in this comic. I'm enjoying the heck out of her. Uh, you talked about the Star Trek Three connection. Yeah, they, they actually – Bones takes a moment in the elevator to say – you know, the, the remember thing. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, what are you trying to tell me, Spock? I'm like, oh, OK, cool. Now, I do know that apparently at some point Mike W. Barr did sit down with Harv Bennett 
and talk about his plot. Now, I, I can't remember which letter page I read it in. I think it was right around the time after Star Trek three was the ones that he, he, he so at some point he, he kind of laid out from uh, uh, Harv Bennett what he wanted to do and Harv gave him his blessing. So that's cool, which is really cool. Yeah. So, um, there's, I, I do like there's some other stuff in here too, where like Kirk and Bones are bickering about Bones's job. Basically, Bones is sticking up for his for himself for his responsibilities because Kirk says something, you know, treat that patient. That's an order, and Bones is like, my oath is order enough, you know. And then later on, Kirk says, how's our patient? And Bones is like, my patient, and it just like Bones is kind of saying, you know, back the hell off, Jim. I know how to do my job, so I like that. There are some real nice visual touches here, courtesy of Villagran and Sutton. Uh, and some, one of them is very tiny. When Kirk and Bryce sneak up on that Klingon, mm-hmm. and he's like, Captain Agard. He's like, I see him, Bryce. Just leave him. And then there's a single panel of just the sound effect, and it just says, wham. And then the next thing is Kirk says, to me, this way. <laughs> and it, clearly he's knocked the Klingon out with like one of his probably Kirk karate chops. But I just like that the panel is just the sound effect. I just find that really kind of charming. And then uh, later on, on page 19 of the story, we, of course, uh, artists have to come, probably try and, to entertain themselves, come up with different ways of showing beaming. Mm-hmm. And we see Bryce and the Klingon and Kirk beaming up, and they he puts this pink halo around them and then erases part of their figures. Mm-hmm. Like they're, and I really, it's just a really cool effect. I've never seen a transport effect done like that. And I really enjoyed it. I thought that was a really slick way of doing it. It's neat. And I wonder if he was purposely trying to do it differently than Federation as well, because this is a Klingon transporter at this point. Right, right. So he right. may have been trying to come up with another effect, but it looks nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's sharp. I think one of the most important art things we have to mention is that this issue features the return of the badass Star Trek II away team jackets. <laughs> I love those jackets so much. So I was very excited to see those. <laughs> I wonder if they're available, right? Like just to own? They must be, right? Because oh, no, sure these, these, these companies don't miss a trick on how to merchandise this stuff. That's a, that's a giant collar, though, dude. That is a it really is. big collar. <laughs> um, so, again, it just, just interesting, again, noticing the Klingons, how much they look like motion picture Klingons. And, and I didn't really realize until this, like, how different motion picture ones are versus the later ones. So, But no, it was a great issue, lots of action, and uh, really keeps it going, keeps it, run, keeps it racing. It's a great, it's a great second chapter because often second chapters tend to lull a little, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and because you're you're kind of like, well, I got over the heat of the first one, but no, he really Mike Mike W. Bart really ramps it up, which is nice. It's, he's accelerating, which is cool when you're telling this continued story. Yeah. Now we should have mentioned um, Koloff, you know, who's shown up in this is Kling, the Klingon from Trouble with Tribbles. So we should. Have, <laughs> right. So dipping into the continuity a bit here, and we're about to dip into the continuity a whole bunch more. So let's get into it. So Star Trek uh, issue number three, uh, same creative team again, still another George Perez cover. And this one is our final Perez cover, and it's got, in the foreground, the Enterprise is racing towards danger, away from us. Like, we're, we're behind it, watching it race past us. And in front of it is this giant, what appears to be maybe a space station, exploding, and these Klingons are surrounding it, blasting it. And there's a giant explosion in the middle. So, of course, it's got, you know... Tons of patented George Perez debris and explosion points and the Klingon ships there. And it, it looks great. It looks absolutely fantastic. I think this one is a little more um, relatable than the previous one, than issue number two. Because, again, we, we said it was kind of hard to figure out what was going on with the tech. Here you can clearly see something's being destroyed by the Klingons and you know, the Enterprise is racing to stop them. So I, I like it. It says, uh, Federation and Klingons, foes and friends. So uh, what do you think Does of this it one? bother you? Does it bother you that the birds of prey are white? 
when they're not? They're normally green? Oh, um, no, no, it doesn't bother me that, no. Okay. And, and do we call them birds of prey at this point? Aren't they Klingon cruisers? Because uh, I thought birds of prey was specifically the one that was introduced in the third one. I guess so. I mean, all right, the Klingon ships, though. I mean, for the most part, I mean, I just think it might have been a nicer contrast with the Klingon ships against the Enterprise, which is white. But that's uh, a very Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they could have done the green. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that would have worked. Hmm. You, you, you've you earned your Star Trek nerd patch, by the way. So, Oh, but. thank you. I Well, I thought I had it before, but okay. <laughs> and I probably uh, lost mine for my Birds of Prey comment. Yes, I know the Romulan ships are called Birds of Prey as well. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so, Star Trek number three, Errand of War. So, uh, it's revealed to the readers very early on that the Klingon Emperor Kalas... Yes, it's called Kalas, Rob. Anyway, Emperor Kalas IV is being controlled against his will by the cosmically powered ex... I can't say this word. Excalbians? Is that how you say it? Excalbians? Excalbians, I believe. I mean, I have television reference to look at, but I, to, I could have gotten for that. But anyway. Uh, unfortunately, so is Starfleet Grand Admiral Turner also being controlled by the Excalbians. So Kirk requests permission to travel to Organia as war between the Federation and the Klingons is forbidden by the all-powerful Organians. But instead, Kirk is ordered by Turner to guard the Romulan neutral zone. Later, Ensign Nancy Bryce gives their Klingon guest, Konam, a tour of the ship, and we sense a romance blooming. And then a group of junior officers, including Bearclaw, observe the couple, and their hatred for Klingons begins to sow unrest. Soon, a message is received from Starfleet Command with details of the war. A Klingon fleet has destroyed a medical station, leaving no survivors. In retaliation, Starfleet has destroyed a Klingon research station. The bridge crew is horrified by this news and all of this war propaganda. Unfortunately, these reports also fuel the anger of the junior officers towards the Klingons, which results in an attack on the Klingon Konam. Now, Kirk chooses to disobey orders and sets course uh, for Organia to stop the war. Upon arrival, they discover the planet is enveloped in deadly black, uh, some sort of black field of unknown origin. Two Klingon uh, battle cruisers arrive, and the battle ensues. The Enterprise wins the confrontation, beaming aboard the Klingon survivors. This includes Admiral Kor, who Kirk met on Organia years ago. Kor was ordered to guard Organia from any Federation contact. Suddenly, an ex-Calvian appears. I'm ex whatever folks ex Calvin I'm going to say it, uh, appears and threatens retribution for interfering with their quest for knowledge. Da da da. So we get a whole bunch of continuity stuff in this one, man. Because the because uh, the Organians, you know, that is from Errand of Mercy, which by the way, this issue is called Errand of War. So nice uh, meshing up there. So an Errand of Mercy is the one where the these all powerful Organians basically declare peace between the Klingons and the and the Federation. They say you guys cannot fight and won't let them. Like any weapon they touch turns super hot. So you get the Organian planet here. You get Kor, who was also in that same episode. He's back now. And then you get these Excalbians from the episode uh, Savage Curtain, which was the Space Lincoln episode. So all <laughs> kinds of continuity being thrown at us. So what do you think of this one? It, well, if only Space Lincoln had appeared. In this <laughs> uh, no, th- this this is good. I, again, I liked it. I liked that Savick is back with the crew. I mean, uh, you know, instead of splitting them off, uh, I like the moment where they go and they see that Alderaan has been destroyed. That's a nice moment. <laughs> I think that was really cool. Uh, I love, uh, I love, I love the Klingon uh, core being in Kirk's quarters. That was tough to say. Uh, that's just very funny to me of just seeing that. Like they, it's like the odd couple, those two in the, in Kirk's quarters. Like that's really, really funny. He's like hunched over and he's got his arm, his hands behind his, uh, his behind his back kind of marching around. And it's sort of funny when you see like just watching these two guys 
discuss things back and forth. I mean, of course, we know that this is, again, more sensitive Klingon. But, I mean, you just mentioned in the second issue, he's mowing Klingons down left and right. He's not worried about it. And then, of course, after the next movie, he would become even more bloodthirsty. Right. Uh, but uh, – and, you know, it's when the – when the uh, the, Ar- the Arganian shows up. Nope. Excalibur. Excalibur shows up. I mean, it's like – they get to again. They get to use the have an artist draw it uh, as opposed to doing it on the, like the suits with the cheap, you know, the low. They have very little budget, so it looks kind of cool. The design is still a little wonky. Like she's got these kind of like dots for her face, right, or whatever. But it's still kind of cool, and I like how he comes smashing it. So yeah, it's a fun. It's a, it's again, it's a fun story. My, my, like I said, I, I reading all these, I was like, why didn't I get this comic when it was out? What the hell was wrong with me? Well, I like too that each issue has felt like you know, even though it's part of a four issue saga each issue's kind of been a complete story you know like last time they dealt entirely with that space station you know in the pocket universe here they're dealing with this you know a problem at organia so they've done a good job of bar of telling the larger story but also putting smaller accents that each issue feels like a complete story so i like that now going into this i reread i keep saying reread um i read all of these before re-watching any episodes of star trek so for me going in i didn't remember errand of mercy at all. I mean, I knew there was some space hippies that had said Federation and the Klingons couldn't fight anymore. That's, that's all I could remember. And then the Excalvians, I, I knew there was an episode with Space Lincoln that I had seen, but I couldn't remember anything <laughs> besides that. So when these Excalvian creatures show up, I'm like, what the hell is this? I've never seen this thing before. But I, as I read the four issues, I really didn't feel that lost. I felt like they did a good job telling me what I needed to know to enjoy the story still. So credit to Mike W. Barr and Tom Sutton for getting me through without remembering anything from the series. And I do like how – I mean this Excalvian creature really has like the body of the thing from Fantastic Four. They yes. did a really good yeah, job totally. emulating that. Because yeah. I just watched the episode the other day. And yeah, they're, I, even though they're, they pulled off those creatures pretty well, actually, on the show, um, they are just giant rock monsters, and their heads are just a block with like different gem crystals in there that glow, which is what those blue dots are supposed to represent. But uh, I, th- I, th- I found them to be quite compelling on the series, and I find them compelling here. I think they look pretty cool. So what else? Um... So I, I like that we saw both in, in Kalos the Fourth and Turner being, both being controlled by the Excalvians. Uh, I love that you saw both of them were struggling. Neither one of them wanted to be controlled. Neither one of them wanted war. So that's not usually. Usually you see warmongers as being warmongers. So seeing these people that they actually weren't warmongers and they were being controlled was, I don't know, I felt like they sort of humanized them, I guess, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, no, no, not trying to be specious, Mr. Klingon, but... And uh, the war propaganda stuff was completely believable. In this day and age of politics where everybody's spewing their own version of the truth, it was just – that was just a little too real reading that. I was like, oh, goodness. And you really do get a sense that Kirk is really fighting against this tremendous war machine. Like he knows that the entire Federation is on a war footing and ready and wants blood, and he feels like he's the only one trying to stop it. And you really get the sense that it's one man against everyone. And I like that. I thought that you know you don't feel like he's got much of a hope, but I like that you got that sense from Kirk. It was good. That that reminds me a little, just a very little bit of apparently one of the original script ideas for Star Trek Two mm-hmm. was that Khan was going to use propaganda to turn public sentiment against Kirk and turn him into like public enemy number one. Oh wow. Uh, and they, they jettisoned all that. But I wonder if, you know, you talked about that the Mike W. Barr sat with Hart Bennett. I have to wonder if Hart Bennett didn't say, you know, here's a bunch of ideas that we had that we didn't do, 
But here they are. You know what I mean? I wonder if they had access to any of that material. And you could say, oh, I could pick up a strand and run with that. Well, I was going to save this for the end, but I'll share one with you right now, actually. Uh, There is a few surprises in here um, for me. One is in these issues, Sulu, you know, is first officer. And he's really on the command track. Like he's he's even here saying, you know, when am I going to get my own command? When am I going to get my own command? And I'm like, wow, you know, obviously we know in hindsight that he gets the, you know, Excelsior eventually, but that's yes. <laughs> that's many movies away. So I didn't recall Sulu being on this command track. Did you re- remember? Did this? Do you remember that from back this far back? Oh no, not at all. So here's where it gets interesting. In the script to Star Trek II, at one point, one of the early versions of the script, uh, and I had to do a lot of research on this, but Kirk actually states that Sulu is supposed to take command of a ship called the Excelsior by the end of the month in the script for Star Trek II before the the uh, Excelsior was ever introduced. Did I say Excalibur? I meant Excelsior. Anyway, I I get those two mixed up a lot because of the books I read. Anyway, but yeah, Sulu was supposed to take command of the Excelsior, and they had that all the way back into the Star Trek II script. In fact, one version of him had him in charge of the Reliant. So by the time they were writing the the scripts for Star Trek II, they already did have Sulu Sulu ready for a command track. Um, And and so that obviously didn't make it in the script. But the Star Trek II novelization does mention that Sulu got promoted to commander, and and they also suggest he's not uh, on board the Enterprise anymore. And so uh, it's it's interesting how everyone else was preparing Sulu for the command track. So I think Mike W. Barr got wind of some of that, and that's why he's got that reflected in the story. Hmm, maybe so. Yeah, I said it's, there's there's lots of like little bits of pieces. You mentioned the thing about the propaganda, like the scene where they some of the the Federation members start like throwing stuff at the Klingon, mm-hmm. and they're they're calling Bryce Klingon lover. Like it's it's it it reminds me not. That, you know, it's not that dissimilar from those episodes of Cheers that Ryan has talked about where all of a sudden you're, you're shown the bar flies in kind of a negative light. You're like, mm. wait a minute. These are the people I'm supposed to admire. Right. And you like to think that these Federation people are, are – we are so far beyond racism at this point because we're dealing with different species and all kinds of people that don't look humanoid. But you know, some things stay the same. And so it's a really ugly sequence where they're literally like throwing stuff at him. Right. Uh, it's just like, Ugh, that's, you know, but I mean, again, it, 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 it's a, it's a nice shading that Barr throws in. Yeah. So, all right. Um, the only last things I want to say, there are more shots of the enterprise that just look amazing. And, um, the, the ex-Calbians, by the way, some of the, the language here, they did a real good job too. Cause if, as you, as I rewatched the episode, they use the words play and drama quite often, like, you know, let a situation play out and the drama of the situation. And again, Barr's reusing those phrases here. So he does a real good job. There was one other thing I wanted to mention is just another visual touch by Villagran of when we finally see uh, uh, Katniss Evergreen's command ship. Uh, and uh, we there, there's, there's like this big throne room and there's like this kind of like green globular wall behind him. Like it's very, very alien looking and to me very Klingon-y. And it's the kind of thing that the show never could have afforded to do. Mm. But of course they can do it as a comic. You only get one panel. It's when he gets up off of his throne and he's like, you know, got his arms up. But I just, I to me, it's like that's what a Klingon warship would kind of look like, uh, as opposed to a Federation one, which is much more, you know, human looking and or and kind of clean and whatever. But I think that was again another nice touch, and I think a lot of that probably had to be Villagran making it up 
uh, as he went along, Sutton and Villagram making it up as he went along, because there probably wasn't a lot of visual reference to go by. Yeah, I'm sure. And they, they probably stole everything they could from the TV series and just extrapolated from there. Yep, there you go. All right. All right. So let's move on to Star Trek number four. It's the same creative team, uh, except the cover this time is by Sutton and Villagram, not Perez, because I guess Perez could only crank out a thousand pages that month. Lazy bastard. So <laughs> I, th- I think they probably got him on the hook for the first three issues. Is probably what it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. And you've got you've got the Excalvians uh, and their surrounding. Uh, Kirk and they said the human and the Klingon must fight to the death and it's about them about to punch each other and says the final chapter the name of the story though was called Deadly Allies as the ex Calvian that appeared in Admiral Kirk's quarters insists the drama play its course and that there be no interference in the ex Calvian quest for knowledge Kor asks Kirk if it's a trick, but Starfleet Admiral calls for security. Kor scoffs at the call and attacks the alien himself, but is felled after touching its rocky exterior. Security officers soon arrive, but they are just as ineffectual as Kor despite using their phasers. Kirk orders the men to cease fire and questions Yarnick directly. Yarnick reveals that his race is still trying to determine whether good or evil is the stronger force in the universe, but decided to stage their experiment on a grander scale. Kirk then essentially six the Organians and the Excalians against each other while he and his crew escape. As the planet explodes, Scotty beams everyone up in the nick of time. Back on the bridge of the Enterprise, Kirk and Kor agree that the Federation and the Klingons must find a way to achieve peace on their own without being forced into it by intergalactic babysitters. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so uh, all right, Shag, what did you think of the conclusion? I thought it was great. I thought it was so Star Trek. I mean, you get it's very Star. It Trek. It really is. Yes. You get these two giant, omnipotent races that are being represented just by a visual of some hippies and some rocks. You know, like <clears throat> it, it's what I call highfalutin concepts on a shoestring budget. You know, is, is what it is, and and Kirk tricks them into fighting each other. I mean, it just seems like such a Star Trek plot. I thought it was a really exceptional way to end it. Yeah, it's very. It, 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 I don't mean this in a in a pejorative sense, but the ending feels very much like something William Shatner would have come up with. <laughs> that that Kirk figures it out, and Kirk, you can again, you can hear those lines coming out of Shatner's mouth. That kind of thing, where he's he's turning them against each other, you know. But isn't it worth it? For the ultimate knowledge of good and evil, you know, I mean, and, and there's even this panel where 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 he's got his hand up like he's doing like he's a yeah. like he's a, he's doing a, you know he's like an orator you know yeah. like he's sitting there and he's and he pits the 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 ex calvians against the old hippies and stuff and it's just uh, it's really it's very very funny. I love it. I love every bit of it. I feel like the character, the, the the crew exactly are on model as far as their personalities, the way they're acting. Again, you talked about Kirk's whole big speech, you know, the the, co- the color on the jacket. Everything that it should be there is. And I just uh, – I'm very, very pleased with the outcome of it. Yeah, it's it's a really good four-issue story. You know, it's really it, – it's got a – as you mentioned, each story, each issue has its kind of its own – beginning, middle, end, but then it's a nice arc for the four issues. I mean, as we now know, if this had been done today, this would be two issues longer so they could make it into a trade. Sure, absolutely. They would would, would wrap it up this suit. Actually, the first two issues probably would have been the six issues, and then the second two issues would have been another six issues is the way this would have gone nowadays. So uh, there's more sort of surprises for me in this. You know, we talked about Kalos, which apparently you don't know who it is, which is just embarrassing. But the legacy of Kalos, like – I th- unless something, unless somebody did something in the novels that I'm not aware of. So Kalos was introduced in the Savage Curtain episode, the Space Lincoln episode, right? So they bring all these villains from history, right? Uh, and one of them was Kalos, who was like the founder of Klingon, you know, what they know of as, as their society sort of thing. And here we meet Kalos the Fourth, 
which is kind of cool that they extrapolated this idea from Savage Curtain to give us this Kalos the Fourth as the Emperor. Well, as you get into next gen, Kalos becomes a huge thing. The battle, the, the sword of, or the battle of Kalos, or sword of Kalos. I mean, Kalos becomes a humongous piece of the Klingon lore. And so the fact that they picked up on it and made it a legacy issue this early, you know, again, unless it was done in a book first, you know, credit to them. Well, well done. I'm really impressed. Here you end up with a Klingon serving on the Enterprise, you know, years before Next Generation comes along with Worf. So that's a nice surprise to see them, you know, really ahead of the curve here. They talk about a saucer, they talk about the saucer section separating from the ship. Mm. I didn't know that was a thing until, you know, Next Gen. I didn't know that was an option in the old school strip. Did you? Uh, no, no, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this now after Next Gen. Exactly. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's exactly. what it does. But, but it's like, oh, wait a minute, no, Next Gen was the first one ever to do that. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of things that they just randomly rattle off, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was even around. Because, you know, Next Gen, again, I watched every episode three times, so I know it intimately, whereas the classic stuff I don't know all that well. So it's, it's, it's interesting for me that there was already so much groundwork laid before Next Gen even started that I wasn't even aware of, so – um, let's see. So let's take a second to talk about uh, some of the continuity. So we talked about Koloth. Well, I guess we've already touched on that. Koloth, Core, Organians, and Excalibans. Do you feel like Mike Debibar relied too heavily on the continuity, the old stuff? Hmm. No, I don't – no, I don't think so. I think he's I, – I, Star Trek fans, of course, are known for being pretty unforgiving, <laughs> uh, although nowadays they seem mellow compared to Star Wars fans. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think so. I think he, I think he, he steeps it in the universe – uh, that that he was handed. So no, I did. I didn't get that read from it. I mean, the the, the Excalbians are they are kind of an awkward. I mean, actually, both alien races are a little silly looking. Um, the Excalbians, like you said, they look like the thing, and the Organians. You know, again, you're taking these from the TV show, but they just look like a bunch of old hippies. They kind of look like those those guys that in the final episode of the Challenge of the Super Friends that uh, you know came back and saw the Earth was destroyed. How the hell did this happen? The Super Friends destroyed the Earth. Um, so, but I mean, you know, there'd be Sutton and Villagrin are beholden somewhat to the designs of the TV series. Obviously, if he was designing them from the ground up, they would look a lot more kind of out there because you wouldn't have to worry about it. But no, I didn't, I didn't feel that as I was reading these. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Cause again, I, I already established that I, I didn't know all this stuff going in and yet I followed it and I, I felt like it was fine. So I'm glad to hear you felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the original characters for just a minute because he does introduce a whole lot of original characters, which reoccur and keep going throughout the series. In fact, you touched on them when you did the who's who in Star Trek. Uh, as I seem to recall, oh, yeah. it, was a, it was a whole lot of you going, well, I don't know who this character is. And then Gene <laughs> Hendricks would go, no, no, this is who it is. And so that's what I Yeah, it's Ensign Profiterol. He's a big character. <laughs> so you get uh, Ensign William Bearclaw, which is the son. <clears throat> Why do you laugh every time the Bearclaw thing comes up? Because he sounds like a yummy dessert. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway, you get Ensign Bearclaw, who is really, like, to me, he did I already say this? I don't know if I said this off air or on air. He's like the Flash Thompson of, of the group. Yes, you said this. Okay, yeah, you said right. that about an hour ago. Okay. I, I couldn't remember. So, yeah. So, I like him. You know, uh, Ensign Nancy Bryce, who's the romantic interest for Conom the Klingon. Conom eventually joins the crew and becomes a regular member. So, that's kind of cool to have the recurring characters and sort of the antagonist. And then, other people we didn't really mention, you get Lieutenant Richardson, who's in charge of security. They don't really, at least as far as I've gotten, develop him very much. But it's kind of nice to have a familiar name tied to the security guys. So, when they show up in those weird 
little outfits they had back then. And then uh, Lieutenant Elizabeth Sherwood is she flies at the helm of the ship and she shows up quite a bit. Uh, she's blonde and she you always kind of see her up there next to Sula or whatever. And then you get Grand Admiral Stephen Turner who is being controlled by the ex Calvians here, but later on he stays in and becomes a bit of a, a foil for Kirk as far as like when bureaucratic nonsense gets in his way. It's usually Turner who he's up against. So, all right, two questions here to wrap us up, Rob. So first off, was, and I think we've already established this, but was this a good Star Trek story? Yes, absolutely. The, the, as we said, the, the little speech by Kirk at the end is very Star Trek, where it gets all metatextual and talking about the themes of, you know, people, uh, these races have to come to a conclusion to, to want to get to peace on their own without having it forced upon them because it doesn't work that way. In all of human history, it doesn't work that way. So, yeah, that's very, very Star Trekky. And, yeah, I think it is. I, I'm I, – I, like I said, I'm sort of shocked I didn't get this book at the time because I bought a ton of comics and I loved Star Trek. So I don't know what the 13-year-old in me wasn't attracted <laughs> to to get this book. But but, I, but reading these stories, they were, they were a lot of fun and it felt like Star Trek. I mean – Again, you have to remember that it, it, they don't jibe terribly well with the, the events of the movies, but I'm able to put that aside because I was able to do that for Star Wars. Too. Right, yeah. Well, and later on, Mike, as I said, Mike W.R. goes to great lengths to try and make it work, which is kind of fun. So for me, you mentioned everything about there. Yeah, the, the whole thing with peace makes perfect, you know, perfectly lines up with Star Trek philosophies. But also you get a lot of exploration in here. You get some great space battles with the Klingons. You get a lot of crew personality, a lot of dynamics where the crews aren't getting along. But like, again, Bones and Kirk, they feel like friends butting up against each other. You get Kirk disobeying orders. Uh, the likenesses were solid. Again, the voices were. I I really, really felt like this was a good Star Trek. I, I was definitely on board. It occurred to me, too, that this is just off the top of my head, pre-Next Generation. Oh, yeah. Is the only version of Star Trek done without Spock. Yes. And in fact, they, you know? they talk about that in the letters pages that this is the only place you find Star Trek without Spock. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's back when – I mean I heard the stories about that originally the, the movie – you know, when they were going to do Star Trek Phase 2 mm-hmm. and then it morphed into the movie. And apparently, you know, when they finally brought the script to – I think somebody higher up, somebody said – it you, you oh, I think it was uh, Robert Wise when he took over the director's chair. And he was like – his first command was, we have to get Nimoy back into this. He's like, it's not Star Trek without Spock. And it, like, and that's what turned it around. They're like, all right, we got to get Nimoy back into the fold. He's he's yes, Kirk is the main character, but Spock is the marquee figure of uh, of this franchise. And it's so yeah, this is really the only time you're going to get to see the original crew without. I mean, good lord, even the the new movies of the Kelvin universe found a way to work Spock into two of the movies out of the three. Right. Yeah. Now, for Phase 2, if I remember correctly, they were introducing another Klingon name – I'm not sorry, a Vulcan named Zor, X-O-R. Zon, I think. Or Zon, Zon I, I think you're right, yeah. And, and interestingly enough, later on, they do a couple of issues in between uh, – still, between Star Trek 2 and 3. And they do Savik's backstory. And I want to say – and maybe I'm wrong here, folks, because I'm going to talk about – I think she was, like, uh, engaged to him. I think like he's her hmm. like Ponfar partner or whatever, if I remember okay. right. So it's interesting that they're tapping that phase two kind of idea. So it's interesting. <laughs> Talk about tapping. Oh my goodness. All right. So <laughs> we asked if it was good Star Trek. So Rob, was this a good usage of the comic book medium? Did it make a good comic book? 
Yes, I think it's it. It um, maybe there's a. I don't want to say there's too much talking because there really isn't. There's a lot of action in this. So yeah, let me just erase that. No, I think it is. I think it's Star Trek is probably not the easiest thing to adapt, uh, as I already mentioned, especially in the the at the point that they're getting it. But uh, I think they, I think they did a good job, and I think it's an indication of. The fact that they did a, a good job is that this Star Trek series, the DC one, ran way longer than the Marvel one. Mm-hmm. The Marvel one was like 18 issues and out. Now, of course, they only had the first movie to go off of, and everybody was so terribly put to sleep by that movie, in some <laughs> cases, literally. Um, <laughs> me a few, uh, me a few yeah, months ago. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, the, the DC had the, had the good sense to have the license right when the movies became a, super popular. Right. Uh, so they had more to build on, but I mean, again, I think this is—I think in a lot of ways, this is the definitive comic book Star Trek. I think you're right. I think when people think back to Star Trek comics they love, this is what comes to mind. Now, it's not to take anything away from the later series, because you know, after this one is over, there's another Star Trek series written primarily by Peter David, which is also very good, and IDW's done some good stories too. But this is the one that everyone seems to remember. You know, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's that mid-80s golden age of comics. You know, you can't help it. So for me, I would say this is definitely good comics. There's lots of action, lots of space battles, lots of phaser fights. There's riots. It's all very dynamic. When Kirk runs, he is just super dynamic. You know, it looks like a Kirby sort of run. And there are lots of talking heads. But uh, that's Star Trek, and it's done in a pretty good fashion. I mean, there's still less word balloons than an average X-Men comic, so I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's fine. I mean, a good example is in issue number one, there's this two-page splash page of space combat with the Enterprise and the Klingon ships, and it's smart of them to put in issue one because what a way to kick off that first issue. I mean, it looks gorgeous with the Enterprise surrounded by Klingon ships and crap blowing up and everything, and it just it's fantastic. Now, in the back of issue number one, there's, there is a text piece by Mike W. Barr, and it's sort of interesting. It addresses this, and he says that uh, Marv Wolfman is really the one who came to him and said, let's do Star Trek as a comic. And what Wolfman said to Mike W. Barr, and I'm quoting the thing here, supposedly Marv Wolfman said, don't be bound by the television format. Take the characters, the concepts, the universe, but do comic book stories with comic book pacing, subplots, and even continued stories. That is your prime directive. So, um, pretty cool, you know, that, uh, and, and I agree with that. Again, the subplots are there. You know, the, the continuing story, again, Bear Claw, that's going to simmer for a long time. You know, the, the, all, all the different interplay between the characters and the subplots and everything, it's, uh, it feels very comic booky, and I'm very pleased with it. So, and again, I'm on issue like 20 or something right now, and I am loving it. By the way, there's an issue somewhere down the line written by Walter Koenig with art by Dan Spiegel, by the way. That's right. I remember, I think I might have bought that way. Okay. I think I seem to remember that or something. I know. But yeah, I, I, I don't I, I don't know why I let this book go by at the time, because I'm sure I would have enjoyed it. So, do you feel like we found our joy with these? I think so. I mean, this was really your idea. You wanted to do this a while back, and I, I don't want to say I was dubious, but I just came into it with a kind of like, well, okay, you know, I mean, I don't have any particular passion for this series, but now that I read them, I'm like, oh yeah, this would be fun to continue on to read, because these are, these fun little interstitials shoehorned into the movie continuity, which is really hard because, as yeah. you said, these two, three, and four take a pl- take place like an hour away from each other. Uh, and, and, and Mike W. Barr didn't have the luxury of spinning some characters off on a separate mission, you know, where you're like, oh, well, let's send, let's send Lando and Chewie off to this planet to have an adventure <laughs> and we'll take up three issues. He didn't have that. He, it had to be Kirk. It had to be McCoy. It had to be Sulu and whatever, the whole gang. So, I mean, when, when you... I mean, you, you, you judge things as as how they come out, but nevertheless, I, as a creative person myself, I, I do appreciate how much 
restraint Barr must have been working under. And the fact that these first four issues are as entertaining as they are is a real testament to to his talent as a writer. Yeah, agreed. And and you know, and some of it may have come from the editorial offices too, because after I think issue sixteen, Barr leaves, and the writers. Mm-hmm rotate quite a bit. I mean, they have, they don't keep writers for very long. Eventually Len Wein sort of settles in as the writer for a while, but I mean, you get Diane Duane, writes Some, as I mentioned, Walter Koenig, you get a lot of different writers going in and out of here. And yet the series still feels faithful, still feels like these first ones. So uh, that's why I suggested maybe the editorial help keep a, keep them flying right. But either way it, uh, it works out and it's, it's very enjoyable. So folks go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Go to the FW presents show. There you will find, uh, this episode, please leave your comments there. We'll do an image gallery. We'll do a couple of, uh, not a lot, but we'll do a few pages from here so you can check those out. And uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on these issues. Let us know where we totally went wrong. I mean, don't go ultra trekker on us, man. Don't be like an embarrassment. No, in, in episode 16, this thing, you know, I know we got a lot of our facts wrong, but that's fine. We're here to have fun. But let us know what you thought of this coverage and let us know, you know, who knows, maybe we'll cover some more because I would love to talk about that Mirror Universe saga because it's freaking amazing. <laughs> so uh, anything else we should say? No, I don't think so. I, I said I'm, I hope that uh, that Picard leads to more Star Trek, and I sure hope that we get a Star Trek four in this new series. I, I keep hearing different things. Oh, you mean the movies? Maybe. Yeah, the movies. And maybe they're doing it, maybe they're not doing it, but I sure hope that we get at least one more Star Trek movie with that with that crew. Well, because Star Trek Beyond was so good. I mean, it really and I, maybe you don't feel the same, but I feel like Star Trek Beyond was actually the best of the new Star Trek movies. It felt very Star Trek y to me. A lot of action as well. I just thought it was wonderful. It didn't make a dime, unfortunately, right. and that's kind of the bigger problem. But 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 like I said, I, I think uh I always believed uh, that Kirk – I know we're getting off topic just as we're ending here, but I always believed that Kirk as a character was unrecastable. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, it's, it's got to be Shatner, and that's it. Which If Shatner can't do it, the character's dead. Uh, and then they, they did it. They managed to do it. They managed to find somebody who could be Captain Kirk, I think, in a really compelling way. And to me, and they got very, very fortunate that they found – such great actors to inhabit these characters that were so dear to so many people. And, uh, yeah, I didn't, I don't, I don't love Star Trek Beyond the way you do. I still think the first one's the better one. I will admit that I got a little misty eyed in that scene though, where they look at the photo of the original crew. Mm. Like that Mm -hmm. just made me like, Oh God, there they are. You know? So I think that the new movies have done a a pretty good job in the darkness, notwithstanding have done, have have done a fairly good job of, of honoring what was cool about Star Trek in places. There's some stuff that I would change if I had the chance, but nevertheless, I hope that they're, that they get it much like Picard is getting, is giving those great characters a chance. uh, Some of them uh, to get another, uh, another, uh, you know, bite at the apple. I sure hope that, uh, they, they do make a Star Trek four with this group. Yeah, I totally agree. And if you love the novels, the the original Expanding Universe novels, drop me a line. Love to talk about them. I can't get enough of them. So love it, love it, love it. All right, folks, I think that's going to do it. Uh, until next time, uh, live long and prosper. I love Italian. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs>